I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit tomboyx.com. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I have had Horace Fletcher on my to-do list for a podcast for forever. He is best known for starting a food fad that came to be known as Fletcherism. And this involved uh, largely chewing your food a lot. There were some other aspects too, but chewing a lot, (laughs) a lot, a lot. There were a ton of food faddists in the early 20th century. And Fletcher was really one of the most famous. He probably, if you were ranking them, He would come in second to John Harvey Kellogg, who we've talked about on the show before. Kellogg called Horace Fletcher the, quote, founder of a new and wonderful movement. And if you've seen the movie The Road to Wellville and you remember the scene where they sing a song about chewing, there really was such a song. The song in the movie, not the real song. There doesn't seem to be like a surviving copy of the actual song, but there there was a song that they sang in the dining room about chewing. Uh, So heads up, Uh, this episode is about a food fad. So we're going to be talking a lot about food and eating and restrictive diets and weight loss and all that kind of stuff. And then also, when I described what Fletcherizing involved to my spouse, he found it incredibly gross and insisted that I needed to warn people about that too. Um, And just to be incredibly clear, we are not advocating any of these methods. In fact, we are not making any dietary recommendations whatsoever in this episode. We are just talking about them. Horace Page Fletcher was born August 10th, 1849 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. That's on the Merrimack River, about 30 miles north of Boston. His parents were Isaac and Mary Blake Fletcher, and he was the youngest of their four children. 
a lot of his life sounds like it must have been both fascinating and exciting, but most sources repeat the same few points without a lot of concrete detail. Like a very brief obituary of Horace's father Isaac describes him as a stone contractor, a deacon at First Baptist Church of Lawrence, and one of Lawrence's oldest citizens when he died in 1885 at the age of 76. Other than that, we don't really know much about the family or what their life was like. Yeah, according to one person who wrote an obituary, he had been working on an autobiography. And this obituary writer was like, I sure hope that wasn't lost, but as far as I know, it was lost. (laughs) It does still exist somewhere. I wasn't able to find reference to it. We have a pretty good sense, though, that Horace always loved adventure. And when he was nine years old, he tried to run away so he could go to sea. He did not go to sea. Somebody caught him and brought him back home. And then after that point, he was sent to school in New London, New Hampshire. Once he finished school, he once again tried to go to sea, this time successfully. He found a position on a whaler that was bound for Japan. And after this trip, he had just a lifelong fascination with Japan and more specifically with Buddhism. After returning to the U.S., Fletcher enrolled in Dartmouth College, but he only stayed there for a year before setting off for more travels. He later described his life this way, quote, four complete trips around the world, two of them before the time of ocean steamship lines and continental railroads, 36 trips across the American continent by various rail, water, and stage routes, 16 voyages across the Pacific Ocean, and many across the Atlantic. Intermittent periods of residence in many different countries of Europe, in China, in India, in Japan, and in different localities in the Americas, as well as visits to parts remote from the lines of travel, such as South Africa, Yucatan, and the mountain regions of Mexico and Central America, that are the types of all the South American countries, and all of which residences and visits have been chosen at times of greatest interest in each locality. In response to the invitation of the spirit of adventure by which I have been led, these, together with no less than 38 distinct occupations, embrace the sum of my opportunities. So yeah, that reference to occupations. He was not always just traveling for its own sake, although I'm sure some of those trips were mostly about pleasure. He was also making money, doing things like working aboard ships and importing and exporting various goods. He also developed a reputation as an athlete and a marksman. In 1880, he wrote a pamphlet called ABC of Snapshooting, Sporting, Exhibition, and Military. So along with describing how to raise, point, and fire a weapon all in one fast and efficient and accurate movement, this pamphlet also described a Fletcher ball bell that you could use as a thrown target. This was made from two metal hemispheres joined by a post, which would make a very distinctive ringing sound if the shooter hit it. He described at length why the Fletcher Bell Ball was superior to other types of thrown targets. The back of this pamphlet also contained an advertisement for a rowing machine, patent applied for, that Fletcher had designed, which came in different configurations, including ones meant to be used by rowing clubs. In 1880, so the same year that he published that pamphlet, the 31-year-old Fletcher was settled enough in San Francisco, California, that he actually registered to vote there. So 
presumably planning to stay at least for a little while. And a year later, he married Grace Adelaide Marsh, who was 24. Grace had a four-year-old daughter named Ivy. Also in 1881, Fletcher applied for another patent along with William Rose Finch. This one was for improvements in breech-loading firearms. While living in San Francisco, Fletcher seems to have kept up his habit of pursuing various interests. In addition to the shooting manual and the rowing machine and those firearm improvements, he made a printer's ink and he established an import business to bring in goods from Asia. He liked to paint and he exhibited his own work. He also was an avid reader and autodidact. According to some accounts, he helped establish the Bohemian Club. That's an elite, invitation-only men's social club. But the Bohemian Club was established in 1872 when Fletcher was only 23. Does not seem to have been the time when he was living in San Francisco yet. Eventually, the Fletchers moved to New Orleans. Later on, Horace was described as, quote, one of the social and literary lights of New Orleans. This writer also described him as a ripe scholar, a charming gentleman, and a successful businessman. By 1892, he was managing the New Orleans Opera House, although this seems to have led to some financial trouble. Uh, Operas are expensive, and in 1894, the Opera Guarantee Association filed suit against him over $10,000 in opera company debt. This is debt that Fletcher was contractually obligated to pay off. Other than that lawsuit, it really seems like Fletcher was living a pretty good life, one in which he was well-liked and well-respected wherever he went, and which was also full of travel and adventure and things that he enjoyed. He had made a lot of money and then used it to fund things like opera and theater and art. But as he got into his mid-40s, he was also experiencing what Uh, we think a lot of us do in our mid-40s. He was feeling kind of run down. He had persistent indigestion, and he also came down with what he described as a case of influenza about every six months. Around 1895, he applied for a life insurance policy, and he was turned down as an unacceptable health risk. So this was a wake-up call. Fletcher later described this experience this way, quote, About 10 years ago, at the critical age of 44, the author was fast becoming a physical wreck in the midst of a business, club, and social tempest. Although he was trained as an athlete in his youth and had lived an active and most agreeable life, he had contracted a degree of physical disorder that made him ineligible as an insurance risk. This unexpected disability, with such unmistakable warning, was so much a shock to his hopes of a long life that it led to his making a strong personal effort to save himself. So he decided to stop what he was doing, figure out what was causing all of these changes to his body and health, and then fix it. Quote, the study was taken up in a systematic manner, account of which is too long to relate here, but the eager auto-reformer soon learned that his troubles came from too much of many things, among them too much food and too much needless worry. And realizing the danger ahead, he sought a way to cure himself of his disabilities by the help of an economic food supply, as did Luigi Cornaro. But what is even more important, he found a way to enjoy the smaller quantity of food much more than any plethoric luxury can give. 
and arrived at the method by a route that showed a means of conserving a healthy economy and an increased pleasure of eating at the same time, in quite a simple and scientific manner that anyone may learn and practice without any ascetic deprivation whatever. So side note, Luigi Cornaro was a Venetian nobleman who lived in the 16th century and credited a severe calorie restriction with restoring him to physical health, and Fletcher brought him up a lot in his writing. Fletcher later described this as a five-month process in which he assessed how he was thinking, eating, and just living, and made changes. And in his mind, those changes were so successful and so transformative that he needed to share them with others. So soon, he was writing books on the subject, and we're going to get into all of that after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Although Horace Fletcher's most famous health advice was about chewing food, his first books didn't really focus on that at all. His first two books were 
Menticulture, or the ABC of True Living, published in 1895, and Happiness as Found in Forethought Minus Fear Thought, which came out two years later. I feel like that could be published today and people would lap it up with a spoon. For sure. A lot of the things that uh, he talks about in these books uh, are very um, in line with things that you might read in various self-help or maybe kind of new-agey books today. So Menticulture was expanded from a talk that Fletcher gave in New Orleans to a group of what were called mental scientists. That would have included psychologists, moral philosophers, behaviorists, basically anyone whose work was connected to the mind and mental health at this relatively early point in the history of psychology as a field. He mentioned humanity's struggle to treat disease until the development of germ theory. And in Fletcher's view, mental illnesses had germs of their own, and there were ways to get rid of those germs. Horace Fletcher stressed that this was not his own new discovery. Quote, Christ, Buddha, Aristotle, Omar Khayyam, and many others have all suggested that the elimination of the evil passions is entirely possible. But my special analysis of them and the easy method of defeat that I have found possible to myself have excited such interest that I have been induced to publish them without attempting to follow the subject beyond the elementary stage. Long story short, all of those evil passions were rooted in anger or worry. And if you got rid of anger and worry, you could get rid of all of their associated ills. That sounds great. Yeah, like... (laughs) He doesn't ever uh, seem to engage with the idea that, like, a person could have a mental illness that, that makes getting rid of worry and anger kind of outside of their control in a lot of ways. Right. There's a presumption of, like, a level playing field of everyone's uh, mental health. Yes, 100%. Yeah, but, you know, I have for sure been in places or times in my life when I was making a lot of my own misery by my own, uh, like, thought patterns. And, you know, getting out of those thought patterns changed things. So, I mean, that's... That part of it is both appealing and problematic. So anyway, he offered a prescription for how to do this. Quote, one grain of the assurance of Christ that man is made in the image of God. One grain of respect for the responsibility of the care and culture of the divine essence with which we have been entrusted. One grain of the command of Christ implying a possibility, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. One grain of the example of Buddha that a man can grow to perfection through the elimination of anger and worry and their brood of dependent passions. One grain of the wisdom of Aristotle, which declared that the passions are habits of the mind and can be gotten rid of as physical habits are gotten rid of. One grain of the assurance of Omar Khayyam that heaven and hell are within ourselves. One grain of the assurance of Christ that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. One grain of common sense applied to an analysis of mental handicaps and the discovery of their limitations. One grain of the today experience of the author that anger and worry are the roots of all the passions which depress and can be eliminated. Sounds great. Uh... (laughs) 
Fletcher's next book, Happiness as Found in Forethought Minus Fear Thought, was, quote, written in answer to many questions elicited by the publication of Menticulture. He offered further thoughts on anger and fear and getting rid of them and outlined various definitions of concepts like altruism and envy. As an example, here is his definition of optimism. Quote, optimism is forethought. Christianity, pure and undefiled, is perfect optimism. Christ is the perfect optimist. And for pessimism, pessimism is fear thought. Pessimism is the devil. He stressed the need to stay focused on the present with such gems as let us work together for a season in the now field, which is one of the best sentences I have ever read. We're just going to work in the now field. He also offered some aphorisms and rules for living, including don't be a sewer, which I think that's some good advice. Do not be a sewer. I used to have a dance teacher that would say that all the time, and I wonder if she knew this is where it came from. Don't be a sewer. In 1898, Fletcher published That Last Waif, or A Social Quarantine, A Brief. This was a call for better treatment of children, especially orphaned and abandoned children, and he donated the book's proceeds to that cause. He gave in it an anecdote of seeing a child about four years old living in poverty in New Orleans during the Spanish-American War and feeling moved to see such children better cared for. This wasn't a purely altruistic impulse. The hope was that this would protect these children from bad influences and allow them to grow up into productive, upstanding members of society. Fletcher proposed to do this by establishing kindergartens that would act as a social quarantine, which in his words meant, quote, throwing a perfect cordon of care around tender souls coming into a nation or community so that none shall escape contact with the wholesome suggestions and adequate nourishment that are essential to growth and habit-forming according to the best intelligence of the science of child life. In this publication, he included a long list of recommended organizations that he thought should participate in this kindergarten project, as well as committees that needed to be established to carry it out. This work included a lot of references to educator Sarah Brown Ingersoll Cooper, who had been a prominent voice in the kindergarten movement until her tragic death just a couple of years before this. If you go looking for information about her, this death involved a suicide, so be aware. Um, It reprinted some of her work as part of the book. Shortly before publishing The Last Wave, Fletcher also put out a pair of pamphlets on eating and nutrition. What Sense or Economic Nutrition and Nature's Food Filter or What and When to Swallow. He combined and expanded on them in 1899, and the result was The New Glutton or Epicure, which he revised again and republished in 1903. So, Menticulture and Happiness had detailed how he had improved his mental health by getting rid of anger and worry. And according to these works on food and nutrition, he had improved his physical health by changing how he ate, primarily by chewing a lot more. 
This was in the middle of a ton of food fads that developed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. There was a big cultural focus on what to eat and how much to eat and how that could affect a person's health. We talked about James Salisbury and his meat-based diet not long ago on the show, and he started his research into that in the 1850s and 60s. Other people writing around the same time took the opposite view, that people ate too much meat and that a vegetarian diet was really the way to go. Of course, there have been vegetarians and people who primarily ate meat forever, but this went a little further with a lot of focus on the supposed curative benefits of these kinds of food choices. Raw foodists, fruititarians, and others took similar tacks, arguing that their specific diet was the key to perfect health. This is a pattern we still see today with various fad diets promising to, like, cure everything. All the time. So within the scientific and medical communities, there was also a lot of discussion about how much people should eat, including how much of which nutrients. The term vitamin hadn't been coined yet, but various researchers were looking at things like sugar and protein, how much a person's body really needed to function. In the second half of the 19th century, various researchers started quantifying the energy in food as calories and developing instruments to measure calorie content. So while Fletcher's work was based on pretty much his own experience and his own reading, he was writing about it at a time when a lot of different people were suggesting that different foods or combinations of foods or nutrients or whatever could effectively act as cure-alls, and also studying the nutrients in food more methodically and how they affected the body, like in a more scientific, systemic way. During his months of examining his own life and habits, Fletcher had decided that he was eating too much and eating too fast, and that this was true of most other people as well. But he also came to some very erroneous conclusions about human anatomy and physiology. He thought that most digestion happened in the mouth, that the anatomy of the mouth, including anatomical structures in the palate and throat, acted as a nutrient gate, that indigestible foods became digestible only after being chewed thoroughly and being mixed with saliva, and very importantly, that chewing food sufficiently required you to keep chewing until the food had lost all its flavor and had been rendered into a nutrient liquid that would slide past that gate and down the throat involuntarily. It would, in his words, swallow itself. This makes me so sad. (laughs) Yes. The food's taste offered a clue to how long that chewing needed to go on. As long as there was a flavor present, there were nutrients that still needed to be extracted. In some of his uh, writing, he kind of personifies this in the form of Dr. Taste, who tells you if you're ready to swallow your food or not. Indigestible sediment, meaning anything that was not liquefied and remained in the mouth during that involuntary swallow, that was unnecessary. You could spit it out. And if you were really chewing your food that thoroughly, and according to him, absorbing all the nutrients and spitting out all the waste, then you would, of course, see a big difference on the other end of the digestive tract as well. He called feces digestion ash, both because of what he said it resembled when eating this way 
and because he thought that the body had burned away all of the nutritious substance as fuel and left only ash behind. Some key misunderstandings about the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. So this chewing process went way, way, way beyond the idea of chewing each bite 32 times, which I think... Most of us have probably heard somebody say that before. It's often attributed to British Prime Minister William Gladstone. I'm not actually sure whether he really said that. Uh, Most of the time when I tried to track it down, stuff circled back to Horace Fletcher, so uh, I don't really know. Uh, How many times a person needed to chew a bite of food, according to Fletcher, depended on the food. He wrote, quote, some morsels of food will not resist 32 mastications, while others will defy 700. The author has found that one-fifth of an ounce of the midway section of the garden young onion, sometimes called the chalet, has required 722 mastications before disappearing through involuntary swallowing. After the tussle, however, the young onion left no odor upon the breath and joined the happy family in the stomach as if it had been of cornstarch softness and consistency. Fletcher also applied his ideas to liquids. Quote, Don't drink soup. Don't drink milk. Don't drink beer. Don't drink wine. Don't drink syrup sodas for the taste of the syrups. Sip everything that has taste so that taste can inspect it and get the good out of it for you. You're supposed to hold it in your mouth until you didn't taste it anymore. Horace Fletcher claimed that eating and drinking in this way allowed him to consume a whole lot less without feeling deprived in any way. Quote, the author ate just what his appetite called for as nearly as circumstances of supply permitted. He ate all that his appetite would allow, enjoyed a gustatory pleasure that had never been equaled under old habits of taking food, and was a distinct Epicurean gainer by the economy learned and practiced. He described himself as five foot seven inches tall and 205 pounds when he started eating this way and said that about four months later, he weighed 163 pounds and that his energy had returned along with his desire to do physical activity as he had in his younger years. In some circles, all of this really got on and Fletcher wound up with some very famous devotees. We'll get into that after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. (laughs) 
Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Horace Fletcher's The New Glutton, or Epicure, included some of the correspondence that he'd had with other high-profile people in the world of food and health fads. One was Edward H. Dewey, who was a proponent of fasting and the author of a, a work called The No Breakfast Plan and the Fasting Cure. Another was John Harvey Kellogg, who we've talked about before, whose Battle Creek Sanitarium, nicknamed The Sand, was renowned as a center for health and wellness. Among other things, Kellogg advocated a bland vegetarian diet, and for a time, he also advocated Fletcherism at The Sand. He was also a proponent of eugenics and one of several people to introduce Fletcher's ideas into the eugenics movement. In 1900, Fletcher and his family were staying at a hotel in Venice, and Fletcher became friends with the hotel physician, Ernest Van Someren. Van Someren became interested in Fletcher's ideas, and in 1901, he read a paper to the British Medical Association in which he summarized them. He said that he'd improved his own health by chewing his food thoroughly and reducing his protein intake. Van Someren said Fletcherism had allowed him to cure himself of gout, headaches, frequent colds, eczema, and other maladies, while also improving his mental health and his outlook on life. Ernest Van Summeren also married Fletcher's stepdaughter, Ivy. That happened in 1902. Beyond Fletcher's published work and lectures on food and nutrition, he also had money. And during these same years, he started trying to establish and fund a nutrition research institute. This may have led some nutritionists to give him more attention than they might have otherwise, since newly developed instruments like respiration calorimeters were expensive. Sir Michael Foster of Cambridge University heard about Fletcher's plans and invited him to come for a visit. 
Although it seems like Fletcher's ideas did get some support at Cambridge, the university eventually turned its attention to funding from the Carnegie Institution, was also providing money for this kind of research, and not advocating that people chew their food until it was a tasteless pulp. Fletcher visited the sand in 1902, and that same year he carried out a publicity stunt meant to show off his endurance, which he attributed to his way of eating. He climbed to the top of the Washington Monument, that was 896 stairs without stopping, and then he ran back down. This was not the first or the last such display. For example, a few years before, for his 50th birthday, he and 30-year-old artist Edward W. Redfield had set off on a 200-mile bike ride in France, although Redfield got cramps and had to take a train back home while Fletcher went on without him. Fletcher also became connected to Russell H. Chittenden, who was director of Sheffield School of Science at Yale University, who wondered if Fletcher's methods might help him address some of his own chronic health issues. Chittenden invited Fletcher to the lab for a series of studies. He ran various tests and experiments. This included analyzing exactly how much Fletcher was eating and of what, and having him do various physical trials. He concluded that Fletcher was living on less food than most people were believed to need, including eating about a third of the recommended amount of protein, all while maintaining what seemed like a steady weight, and he also seemed to be physically healthy. Although Chittenden does seem to have concluded that Fletcher was physically healthy while eating a lot less food, he was also pretty selective about which of Fletcher's ideas he really supported. He thought really, really thoroughly chewing food led to better digestion and that the reduced calorie and protein intake that was a natural side effect of this extensive chewing was a good thing. But he did not support Fletcher's claims that there was some kind of physiological nutrient gate in the mouth or that the mouth included previously unknown digestive organs. Chittenden published an article about his work with Fletcher in Popular Science in June of 1903. It said in part, quote, The writer has had in his laboratory for several months past a gentleman, H.F., who has for some five years in pursuit of a study of the subject of human nutrition practiced a certain degree of abstinence in the taking of food and attained important economy with, as he believes, a great gain in bodily and mental vigor and with marked improvement in his general health. Under his new method of living, he finds himself possessed of a peculiar fitness for work of all kinds and with freedom from the ordinary fatigue incidental to extra-physical exertion. And using the word abstinence, possibly a wrong impression is given, for the habits of life now followed have resulted in the disappearance of the ordinary craving for food. In other words, the gentleman in question fully satisfies his appetite, but no longer desires the amount of food consumed by most individuals. A lot of Horace Fletcher's writing was focused on feeling better, both mentally and physically. But he also touched on more economic ideas, like if poor people started Fletcherizing, they could better afford to feed their families. And that aspect of Fletcherism was really attractive to people who were responsible for figuring out how to feed large groups, like the U.S. Army. The Army sent a medical team to Yale, reportedly some of the same people who had been part of Walter Reed's efforts to stop the spread of yellow fever, which we recently had as a Saturday classic. 
the army wanted to figure out if soldiers could cut down on the rations that they needed by employing Fletcherizing. Fletcher published another book in 1903 called A, B to Z of Our Own Nutrition. Among other things, this describes some of the ongoing research that was happening at that point involving soldiers at Yale. In it, Fletcher also proposed a series of questions for readers to ask themselves. Some were pretty straightforward, like the first question, which was, how much do I know about my own nutrition? Others were a little more fanciful, including, quote, were I an iron and steel automobile instead of a flesh and blood automobile, which I really am? Could I get a license for myself as a chauffeur to run myself with safety based upon my knowledge of my own mechanism and the theory and development of my power? (laughs) Just going to digest that concept for a moment. Uh, Fletcher also placed a lot of moral and religious weight onto eating decisions. As one example from this book, he wrote, quote, How can I religiously ask a blessing upon food and then immediately sin by treating it in a manner abhorrent to the natural requirements? In 1904, Chittenden was still doing research at Yale, including one study involving three groups of test subjects. There were brain workers. Those were people who had pretty sedentary jobs. There were members of the Army Hospital Corps whose activity level was described as moderate. And there were members of the varsity crew at Yale who were doing intensive athletic training. According to Fletcher, the Army also distributed a set of instructions titled Method of Attaining Economic Assimilation of Nutriment, but the only places that Tracy found that were in Fletcher's own writing and that of people citing him. He did, however, serve on the Committee of 100 on National Health, as well as on the other National Commission on Mental Hygiene. At one point, he was also vice president of the Food Reform Society of England. Although people like Chittenden and various army leaders seem to have been willing to at least investigate Fletcher's claims, he was at odds with a lot of other people in the evolving field of nutrition. Fletcherism was nicknamed the choo-choo cult, and even some people who cautiously suggested that he might have a point in terms of people needing to chew their food better Uh, They also noted that most of his support was from people who just subjectively said that they felt better when they were Fletcherizing their food. Anecdotes versus data. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, Fletcher was giving speeches and funding research and mailing samples of his digestive ash to researchers. Famous people who reportedly attended his lectures included John D. Rockefeller, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and Upton Sinclair. Franz Kafka was reportedly a Fletcherite, with his father hiding behind his newspaper during meals so that he would not have to watch all that chewing. Two prominent devotees were author Henry James and his brother, philosopher William James. William discovered Fletcher's work first and sent a copy of one of his books to his brother. Both of them were really hoping that they could address various health concerns through Fletcher's methods. For a time, their letters to each other included a lot about Fletcher's ideas. Henry, in particular, was, in his own words, zealous, and he advocated Fletcherism to his friends and literary colleagues, including Edith Wharton. 
Henry James wrote to Fletcher in 1905 and told him that after adopting his methods, quote, all my serenity and improvement return. William wrote to the Harvard Crimson that same year to encourage students and staff to attend one of Fletcher's lectures. But both brothers had given up on Fletcherism by 1908 and 1909. Apparently, Henry ultimately decided that living on so little food was a miserable experience. By that point, Fletcher had made another trip to Yale for another set of studies and physical tests. In his own words, at the age of 58, he did a set of trials under the observation of a Dr. Anderson. Quote, I lifted 300 pounds dead weight 350 times with the muscles of my right leg below the knee. The record of the best athlete was then 175 lifts, so I doubled the world's record of that style of tests of endurance. Just taking that in. Uh, Russell H. Chittenden published another report in Popular Science in 1907, describing another battery of tests of strength and endurance. It read in part, quote, why a man of 59 years of age without training should be able to far surpass the record for endurance made by young and vigorous athletes can only be surmised. But it certainly seems plausible to assume that the explanation is to be found in the careful dietary habits which this man has followed for the past nine years. Still, other people were not nearly as complimentary. In 1909, journalist and theater critic Francis W. Crown and Shield published Manners for the Metropolis, an entrance key to the fantastic life of the 400. In this book, Crown and Shield wrote, quote, Fletcherites have lately added a new horror to dining out. These strange creatures seldom repay attention. The best that can be expected of them is the tense and awful silence which always accompanies their excruciating tortures of mastication. For context, uh, back in 1888, Ward McAllister had told the New York Tribune that there were only 400 people in fashionable New York society, and that had evolved into a list of who the 400 fashionable people were. And a few years after this, Crown and Shield would become editor of Vanity Fair. In 1913, Fletcher published Fletcherism, What It Is or How I Became Young at 60. In it, he wrote, quote, The first rule of Fletcherism is to feel gratitude and to express appreciation for and of all the blessings which nature, intelligence, civilization, and imagination bring to mankind. He also boiled Fletcherism down to five rules. First, wait for a true earned appetite. Second, select from the food available that which appeals most to appetite and in the order called for by appetite. Third, get all the good taste there is in food out of it in the mouth and swallow only when it practically swallows itself. Fourth, enjoy the good taste for all it is worth and do not allow any depressing or diverting thought to intrude upon the ceremony. Fifth, wait. Take and enjoy as much as possible what appetite approves. Nature will do the rest. During World War I, Fletcher started working with Herbert Hoover on food relief projects in Europe. Although in some accounts, this was more like an honorary position that Fletcher basically appointed himself to. Today, Herbert Hoover is most known for having been U.S. president at the start of the Great Depression, and in a lot of ways, he has become a huge scapegoat for that entire financial crisis. 
But at this point, he was known as the Great Humanitarian. Hoover had become a multimillionaire after being orphaned at a young age, and he had retired from business to focus pretty much exclusively on philanthropy. If Fletcher's ideas really were sound, if a person really could live on about a third of the recommended calories and protein and still be healthy, that would, of course, be revolutionary to wartime relief efforts. But a number of people pointed out that there was a huge difference between Army recruits and Yale athletes being studied in a lab, having arrived at that lab well-fed and in good health, and people facing years of malnutrition, deprivation, hardship, and violence during the war. Fletcher claimed to have taught Fletcherism to 8 million starving people in Belgium. But although Russell Chittenden was on the advisory committee for some of this food relief, and Chittenden had been researching Fletcher's methods for years, these relief projects did not formally adopt those methods. Yeah, one of the articles that I read about this kind of did a whole thought exercise of like, but what if, actually I think it was a podcast I listened to, like, but what if what if they had? <laughs> how, how much differently would things have gone if people had been spending all of their time chewing and and having way less food. Anyway, Horace Fletcher's story has an abrupt end. He died on January 13th, 1919 in Copenhagen. One obituary described him as 70 years young, although that same obituary also described him as having asthma and rheumatism and being nearly blind from cataracts in both eyes. He's buried in Bellevue Cemetery in Lawrence, Massachusetts, His wife, Grace, lived on until 1942, and his ideas pretty quickly fell out of fashion after his death, although there has been various research since then about exactly how much chewing really is the right amount and whether there was anything to this whole idea. They've kind of had varying results. (laughs) I'm the healthiest person alive! And now I am gone. Thank you. Uh, It's a wild one. Yeah. Do you have listener mail that doesn't involve a lot of chewing? Fingers crossed. I do, and it includes no chewing. Um, This is from Rachel, and Rachel wrote after our uh, blood donation episode with a little PSA. Rachel said, Hi there, I just listened to your blood bank episode and behind-the-scenes many and wanted to share a quick PSA. I also haven't had good experiences donating whole blood due to borderline anemia, but then I found out about platelet donation after a friend of mine was battling lymphoma. She's doing great now. I'm not a science-slash-medical person, but essentially platelet donation involves taking whole blood out of one arm, cycling it through a machine to remove the platelets, and then returning everything else to the other arm. It's a longer process, about two hours, but depending on your platelet concentration, they can get up to three units per session. And in my experience, the donor doesn't feel as faint afterwards since you're getting your red blood cells back. It has to be done at specific locations, i.e. not mobile blood banks, since the equipment is large, but they wrap you in warm blankets while you watch TV, read, or even just sleep. Platelets have a wide use and are often given to cancer patients, and since they are the part of your blood that clots, they go bad quickly and are needed often. And there's a link to the Red Cross page about that. Um, Rachel says that, uh, Tracy, I know you said you often give whole blood, so you might not be interested in platelet donation, but I also live in the Boston area, and the MGH Donation Center is top-notch. Thank you for everything you both do. I love your podcast and the new behind-the-scenes mini-episodes. I've attached a short video here of our mischievous cat, Penny, who loved opening our cabinets at our old apartment and hiding among our snacks. Cheers, Rachel. 
Um, that last bit reminds me of a thing that was going around on TikTok for a while about people needing a cabinet kitty. People would have a little video and open the door and there would be their cabinet kitty. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for that, Rachel. For me personally, I can walk on foot to a drive where I can give whole blood and going to give platelets requires like either a 20 to 30 minute car trip or much longer on public transportation for where I live. So just for me personally, like it, it, I'm more able to fit a whole blood donation into my schedule, but for other people, for other reasons, platelets work a whole lot better. Well, and I think I'm probably the person that mentioned that I always get dinged for having uh, borderline anemia. Right, and there right. is a platelet donation place near me that is fairly new that I uh, I need to make time to go visit and check out and see if uh, if I'm a good candidate. Uh, my thing with that is that it is very hard for me to set aside three hours, yeah, where I can't be doing seven other things. <laughs> I was going to fill in your sentence by saying holding still for that long. It's very hard for me. Um, yeah. That's like the trick. That's like an anxiety inducer when I'm like, do you mean I just sit? I say, what if I have to pee? Like I immediately go to this like whole anxiety party train. But, sure, sure. But I'm going to talk to him and see if there's a way that even the Holly Fries of the world could do it. Um, I I don't know that this would necessarily help. Uh because part of this is, is needing or wanting to be up and around. But um, recently when I had a thing that was going to take up a bunch of my time, uh, I picked something to binge watch and put it on my iPad so that I could just take the iPad with me wherever it was that I needed to be. And that helped a lot. Uh, so anyway, thank you so much for that PSA. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.